Welcome to episode 379 of Troubadours and Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. And this week's episode, we have regular contributor, songwriter, artist, musician, actress, and our resident storyteller, Little Star Run. Little Star Run and I discuss how she's doing during this pandemic and during this renewed or maybe brand new sense of social justice. We talk about blame and anger, white privilege and compassion. And then we get to her forte, telling us a story. And she tells us a great one. The moniker is, Are There Angels Among Us? And its setting is in the East Village, a true story. I think you'll enjoy very much. Little Star Run on this week's program. We also have an EWSA titled Freedom, and I share some oral history from Appalachia in the 20th century as gathered by Foxfire Magazine and edited by T.J. Smith. Some good stuff. We have an EW poem called Do You as well. And of course, as is always the case, this show will be imbued, infused with the wonderful energy of several great tunes. So nice to have you with us. Let's get to it. Episode 379 of Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Summer wind came blowing in from across the sea. It lingered there to touch your hair and walk with me. All summer long we sang a song and then we strolled that golden sand Two sweethearts and the summer wind Like painted kites those days and nights they went flying by The world was new beneath a blue umbrella sky then softer than a piper man one day it called to you I lost you I lost you to the summer wind the autumn wind Days, those lonely days, they go 
sighs his lullabies through nights that never end. My fickle friend, the summer wind, the summer wind, warm summer wind. Freedom. People in Portland, thrown into vans by military-grade, unidentified stormtroopers, sent into town by the fearful federal government. A private, for-profit corporation, friendly with the chief executive robber baron, is funneled the pandemic data instead of our public center for disease control agency so that the aforementioned robber baron can control and suppress our understanding of his mess. A Republican governor suing a Democratic mayor in Georgia for working to protect his constituents. It is somewhat ironic given that the underlying issue regards the wearing of masks when that governor cannot know how disguise his contemptible political motivations, regardless of the life and death ramifications. Patriots are those who would fight back and wrest control of our union from the hands of these ruthless Philistines. Little Star Run wonders aloud if there are angels among us, painters and poets, romantic and gracious philanthropists, compassionate and strong, justice-seeking souls, with minds aplumb and ready to live righteous and real, with intellect and heart, imagination and communal zeal. I think we are certainly here, and number in the millions. If only we would open our eyes and remove the shackles, I surmise, this land would witness a wonderful surprise.
Hello. Little Star Run, is that you? Uh, hello, EW. Yes, it's me. How are you doing? Oh, I'm fine. Thanks once again for gracing us with your presence here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. Little Star Run is a regular contributor. She's a songwriter, an artist, a musician, an actress. And as of late, I've been billing her as our resident storyteller because she has some great stories to tell. But before we get into a story, uh, how's it going? We haven't spoken since the pandemic and our, you know, I guess, renewed sense or new sense of social justice here in the U.S. Um, wow, it's going, isn't it? <laughs> uh, whether we like it or not, everything is is moving in, in directions that are bigger than, than all of us. Um, you know, there's a collective um, unconscious that's being awakened uh, and sending waves of change, and people are just going to have to deal with it, you know, the people that are, are, are fighting against it. Yeah, I agree. I, I You know, I'm a bit concerned uh, still, though, because some folks seem to be ill at ease, which is to a certain extent initially understandable, with the uh, real situations that we're dealing with, with regard to the pandemic and with regard to, you know, ingrained systemic racism and social injustice. You know, it's a lot for people who haven't thought about it before or who are spoiled, so to speak, uh, privileged, uh, for them to process. But you need to, as you as you just said. Well, it all kind of got set up that way, right? People in America, I'm going to stress America, because a lot of people in the rest of the world take vacations, do self-care, take time for themselves. But Americans really weren't doing that. They never actually had any real personal time off that they didn't spend I don't know, 10 years working for to go on vacation for like two weeks or something. Um, that's not really a norm in the rest of the world. Um, so, it, you know, what we're seeing exposed here is a pace of life that was unsustainable. Uh, and, it, and it's also exposing the fact that America kept busy so it didn't have to look at itself, in my opinion. Yeah, I like that. I like that. Uh... We, we, but now, I mean, if you are a reflective person and you now have the time, hopefully you are looking at yourself and your place in, in society and your community and the larger world. Uh, yeah. So it could turn into something good if we all truly reflect, honestly reflect. I agree. Um, I think it's already turned into something good that conversations are being raised. Um but, you know, there are blind spots on both sides, um, and that's also something that people need to be aware of, you know. The ultimate thing that we all need to have towards each other is compassion um, because, you know, it's actually a situation where no one is exactly at fault. We're all just sort of in something. So placing blame does nothing Compassion for both sides and open conversation is what does actually um, do something. <laughs> I, I agree with you, and I, I, but I, I do have to say, too, I think you and I are both privileged to be able to say that, right? I'm, and the reason I, 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 I put it that way is because there are folks who have been mistreated for so long that they are so angry 
and they are so distrusting, rightfully so, of the system and of their fellow citizens who aren't in the same stead as they, that they, they can't so easily just say, okay, let's be compassionate uh, and, and have patience for the, those folks who maybe for years have not recognized the, the disparity and, and the injustice. Um, you know what I mean? I mean, you're right. Ideally, we, we should all uh, be open and, and we should be compassionate and we should be patient with one another. Uh, but to tell some folks who are angry and have been uh, dealing with uh, bad stuff for years and years and years, really bad stuff, to calm down in a way is, is you know, again, that comes from a place of privilege, uh, that, that mentality. Then we both have it. I do too. You know, I'm not uh, singling you out. But doesn't mean we can't, we shouldn't keep saying, hey, let's be compassionate. Let's be kind to one another. We need to. But we have to understand some people are going to say, screw you. And that's okay if they do that, you know. I'm not saying people can't be angry, but I'm I'm saying that ultimately to to actually bring about that shift, it's going to take you know, it has it has to take something a little bit more um open and compassionate. Um and I I talked to some friends about you know, how people with privilege can understand uh you know, the mentality and um, a friend of mine uh, in England, we both understood it through the lens of sexism uh, as women, because, you know, it's something that if you do have privilege in certain ways, then, then you need, you do need a lens to really understand that type of experience, not saying it's the same, uh, but you can understand what you want people to know about sexism, um, that it's, not made up, that it, it's not an idea, that it doesn't only affect some people, that it's deeply ingrained, you know, and it, it does need to be looked at from all angles. Um, and yeah, I mean, but that's what I mean, like a, a compassionate way of trying to put yourself in the other person's shoes. And, uh, and yeah, that's, in, instead of being defensive, that's more what I'm talking about because there's a lot of defensiveness on on both sides, and that's where I feel the standstill happens, and that's why I promote people trying to understand each other, you know, and come to some sort of uh, medium understanding. Yeah, I I love it, you know, and and it does seem healthy, and uh, I I appreciate you uh, delving in to this complicated. Uh, uh, discussion with with me here for our listeners on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And, uh, you know, I w- I'm curious to see if the story you're going to share with us, uh, you, you didn't know what we were going to get into before the story. Uh, oh, no, not, of course not. <laughs> no, of course not. But It's extemporaneous. But now the story that uh, you had chosen before we connected today uh, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if it if it does uh, have any similar themes. So you wanted to talk about angels, I believe, right? Um, well, yes, I'm I'm posing the question: Are there angels among us, uh, guiding us and helping us to see our blind spots and our paths in life, um, to understand one another um, and to connect? 
Are, are you taking this from a, like a, a formal religious point of view or context? I'm not religious, and as I get further into the story, I'll, I'll expand on this, but um, <laughs> I didn't even know the significance of what I experienced until someone mentioned it to me, that it might have a religious connotation. That's how unreligious I was, not realizing the parallels or anything else. Um, so for, for me, you don't need to be religious to have these experiences. That's just a framework. Um, you know that certain people put put um, certain certain experiences into. Um, I just feel that they are part of our existence, um, whether they need a formal definition or not. I, I don't think that that's necessary. Are you moving around? No. Is there some kind of? Yeah, there was a little static there, but it's gone now. Okay, I do have an overhead fan above me because it's very hot. <laughs> that might be it. Um, is it? But, it is moving back and forth. Um, yeah, it's right above me. Should I move my position? No, no. you sound good right now. No. It's okay. So, uh, w without further ado, the story: Are there angels among us? I'll I'll, I'll title it. <laughs> Great. Um, so it was a very hot. New York City summer, and I was feeling very broken uh, mentally, physically. I was witnessing a lot of injustice around me, um, specifically against immigrants that I worked with um, and uh, un undocumented uh, workers that I, I was working with in um an establishment in the East Village, which will remain nameless uh, for certain purposes, uh, but but this uh, this establishment was exploiting their workers, um, very unsafe working conditions. Um, I don't I don't want to say, I'm, and I I know it was intentional, but I don't necessarily think that they were horrible people. Again, I just feel that they were doing what everyone else was in New York City and they, you know, felt that it was correct, like doing what's good for their business. But but for me, it was not something that I could witness or be a part of. Um, and I decided that I needed to leave that job and, and leave New York City. And I felt very sad about it because I, I didn't want to, but there was something that was just calling me that I couldn't explain. I couldn't participate um, in in what I was experiencing. So, yeah, I mean, it, it was hard to to be exposed maybe to the world in that way at the age that I was, and I I didn't really feel that I I could do very much. I felt very disempowered, um, and I just felt like okay, you know, I need a break from from this rat race, uh, you know, because I was not really able to afford my rent, work, working several jobs, not only that one job in the East Village, but I had two others. And yeah, just feeling like, okay, I can't, uh, is this what life is supposed to be? I wasn't, I didn't think it was. So I felt sad to leave New York, um, but I made the decision and on my last day at that job in the East Village, I went for a walk 
before work. And I, I was so sad. I didn't really, really want to leave the city, but I just felt it was the only option for me at that point. And I felt like I had failed. Um, you know, these are, these are things that are indoctrinated in us, uh, in American society, you know, like we're, we're groomed to overwork and overproduce and over exist. <laughs> so at that time I felt like, Oh, I failed. I can't do anything. You know, I'm, I'm helpless. And, um, I ran into someone on the streets of the East village that I didn't know, a stranger. Um, he was a painter. He was doing some sort of action painting on the side of the street. And I just stopped. I was watching him for a little while. He noticed me. We struck up a very natural conversation. Um, and we started talking about our lives and our goals and, and you know, what we wanted to achieve, how the city treated artists and, you know, we we both agreed that we we maybe should be somewhere else, but we loved the excitement of the city and um and then we started talking about yoga because I had been living at a yoga ashram uh at one point before this. Um it was actually it was for a lot of reasons. Um I I got cheaper rent for staying there and cleaning the yoga room. Um, and in the East Village, it was unheard of to pay $300 rent, you know. Um, so it was something that was really good for me at the time. And also I was able to cultivate more of my spiritual practice there. Um, and so he and I, I were discussing some of our experiences. And it was just, you know, a simple conversation. We wished each other well. We... we said our goodbyes. I told him that I was leaving the city, you know, and he was wishing me well in my travels and I was wishing him well with his art. And it was one of those beautiful experiences that you just felt connected, you know, and, uh, I continued on my way. Then I went to work my last day and my customers were so supportive, giving me so much love, bringing me presents you know, an outpouring of love that I hadn't experienced while I was working there, which was interesting because the minute I had decided to leave a toxic situation, a lot of love and support came flooding towards me from all directions. Um, and that was really powerful in itself, you know, to to make a a very hard decision um, and and to trust faith and the mm -hmm. unknown and just something that I couldn't possibly explain, just a feeling that I had that there was something more. And so I was talking to one of my customers about leaving and I was going to Oregon. That was where I decided to go. And I told this to one of my customers and um, they wished me well and you know we were having an excited conversation about it and there was someone also in my work um, a customer that I hadn't spoken to before who was there kind of listening and 
sort of chimed in and, and, and said, oh, that's very interesting. You know, I wish you all the best. You know, this is what you should be doing. He said that to me and I was like, okay, well, well, thank you. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for your permission. <laughs> um, you know, not, not that I, I wasn't rude to him or something like that, but it struck me as very odd where I was like, oh, okay. Well, thank you, stranger that I don't know, telling me how to live my life. But, you know. Was he older? Um, no, I mean, he was older than me. Uh, I'm not really sure. No, he wasn't very much older. Um, probably may have like maybe five years older than me. I'm not sure. Um, yeah, I wasn't really able to gauge how old he was. So, and you're, um, so you were in your twenties at the time and, uh, he was probably as well. Um, I had just turned 20. Whoa. Wow. I was very young. Um, I could have even been 19. I might've still been 19. I'm trying to think. Um, but yeah, I was, I was uh, young and impressionable. <laughs> so um, then I didn't think anything about this person or whatever. You know, it was just kind of a random exchange. And um, I, I carried out my last duties at work and closed up. And it was nighttime uh, at this point. And I went walking again in the East Village, as I usually did. Um, just to kind of clear my head and I walked for about 10 blocks and there was sort of a commotion on the street um, and I didn't really know what was going on up ahead there were just a bunch of people kind of crowded around you know they're crowded around something and I couldn't really tell what it was um, so I got closer closer and it was the painter from earlier that I had run into. Now, this is a different street. This is not the street that I ran into him on. This is um, on Avenue A, sort of near Tompkins Square Park. Uh, mm -hmm. in um, ar around that area. And uh, we were, you know, I think we were on 8th Street when I ran into him. I can't remember. It's been a while. But... Um, so this is all on Avenue A, and uh, he's there, and he has a painting, not the painting that he was working on when I saw him, a different painting. Um, and also that stranger is there, the one from my work earlier. And, you know, the East Village is a little small community, and especially at that time it was maybe much more so and not very corporate, you know. Um, it's changed quite a bit. Um, there was more of an artistic uh, presence and family in the East Village. You know, it's it's a little bit different now, um, but so it was. It's common to run into the same people, you know. But you know, these were two people I had never seen, um, and there they were standing together. And they, I had interacted with them both throughout my day, and so I, I got closer, and I I said hello, and I looked at the painting and. The painting was of an angel, and it was an angel in a yoga pose. And I was like, oh, wow. I'm like, that's amazing. It was so beautiful. And it also, it, it just, how did he paint that in whatever the span of, like, six hours, you know, <laughs> um, that I hadn't seen him. Um, and, yeah, I was really overwhelmed when I saw the painting. And then 
I said, wow, that's incredible. And he said, well, after our conversation, you inspired me, what we were talking about with yoga and faith and everything. And, and he said, I wanted to paint something in commemoration of that. And I was like, wow, that's amazing. That inspiration that happened so quickly and, you know, that I got to be a part of and with this stranger on my last day, you know, before I'm leaving the city. And this is, wow, so overwhelming. And then the other person, the stranger, um, he, he said to me, and I wrote a poem about it. I said, oh, okay. He says, and you're in it. I said, what? <laughs> <laughs> he said, you're, you're in it. You know, I overheard you talking about how you were leaving for Oregon and, you know, how it was sort of a mixed decision because your heart was in the city, but it wasn't at the same time. He said, and, I said, and then I I ended up writing a poem uh, around you and around this painting when I saw it. So I don't even know how it happened, to be honest, E.W. Like, even the way he explained it to me was a little bit like, what? It doesn't compute. Like, I don't even know you. You don't know this painter. We don't know each other. How are we connected in this triangle? of creation triangle of creation i like that and this guy who wrote the poem he's the guy that told you you're doing the right thing too exactly yes uh which i also like i said i found somewhat ominous but also inspiring at the same time you know it's like this is what you should be doing it's like well you don't know me please don't interject into my life but at the same time you know i was thinking okay maybe that's a reassurance you know some sort of sign but you know, to to have this happen in such a serendipitous, synchronistic way in this little, small area of blocks in the village, you know, it was really, really something. And I, he gave me the poem, and I, I read it, and I don't have it anymore. And I also, yeah, I, I don't know where it is. I looked for it. I do have it in my possession. I wanted to read it to everyone on here, but I couldn't find it, and I felt bad about it. Um, I only remember the first two lines of the poem. Um, so it was, Oregon angel stance, dancing with your frozen pose. Those were the, the first two lines. And somehow he had incorporated me into this poem and me leaving for Oregon and then also the angel of the painter's painting. And, uh, you know, at the bottom... He signed his name, and what his name was Gabriel, hmm. Gabriel, which is which is an archangel name, correct? Yes, yes. I didn't even know that at the time. That's how unreligious I was uh, brought up. I wasn't really brought up with religion. I honestly didn't even really know those stories. So um, that. That particular fact was lost on me at that time, but when I recounted the story to someone a little bit later, they explained that to me. And then I thought, wow, that's even more incredible. And this is the poet again, the person who worked at that uh, establishment in the East Village, Gabriel. He didn't work, he didn't work there. He just came in randomly. Uh, and I'd never seen him before. And I'd been working there for, for quite a while. Wow. So, so it was the first time you ever met him even there. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And the same with the painter. So he had signed his name on the bottom. It said Gabriel, and I was very moved, you know, even just the fact that he would write a poem and include me in it, you know. 
I got overwhelmed. So I sat down on the pavement among all of these things. Um, oh, and did I mention that the painter's name was Michael? No. What? And that, that's the main uh, chief archangel in, in uh, religious stories. Wow. So their names were Michael and Gabriel. And again, like I said, this fact was lost on me when I first learned it. But then I realized the significance after. And so at this point, I'm feeling that, am I hallucinating? <laughs> Is this a flashback? <laughs> I honestly did feel that. I mean, imagine the emotions, you know. I'm leaving the city I don't really want to. I'm, I'm looking for reassurance. I'm getting, am I getting reassurance that I should stay? Because this is such a beautiful, powerful thing. You know, where am I going to encounter these kind of artists and this kind of synchronicity and this, you know, grand ballet of the city, like Jane Jacobs would say. Like, you know, for me it was, it was okay, am I supposed to stay or am I supposed to go now? I don't know what this means. So I just sat down on the pavement. That's all I felt that I could really do. Um, and then here's what happened. All different types of characters that hang out in the village were coming by one by one, you know, just out walking at night. People used to hang out a lot at night, you know, just artists talking to each other, were coming by and commenting on the painting. And then everyone was getting told the story. And then everyone was getting inspired themselves. And I was just sitting there on the pavement watching everything in disbelief. And I'm thinking, how, what? You know, what's, how is this even possible? And uh, so I, I don't want this story to get too long, but um, what, what happened after that, at one point, a man in a funny shirt, that's what he looked like to me. Because I'm sitting on the pavement, you know, there's all these different characters swirling around. A man in a funny shirt, like sort of like a weird Hawaiian-esque print, but not Hawaiian, something, you know, some kind of really strange pattern, uh, came walking and, uh, and saw the painting and was really overwhelmed with it and, and said, oh, that's the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. I want to buy it. Mm. And yeah. And, uh, you know, he seemed to be sort of a person, like a low key, well off individual you know mm -hmm. um, and Michael said no I'm sorry you can't have this painting I was going to give it to her because she inspired it and her we were talking about her trip and you know we have this whole synchronicity around this painting it's very special to us and you know I can't I can't sell it to you and this man in the funny shirt was a little bit drunk. And so he, not that he was belligerent, but he did insist. He just kept insisting. And he just kept saying, like, you have to tell him, saying to me, like, you have to tell him that he has to sell me the painting. It's very important. And I'm like, oh, I don't know what's going on. I'm like, this is bizarre. <laughs> don't get me involved. <laughs> uh, <laughs> and this went on maybe for about 20 minutes. And the man pulls out a big wad of cash out of his pocket. Like, it was a big sum of money. Mm. And, and he says, look, I'm offering you this amount of money. Um, and Michael, like, you know, was still refusing. And I just I just stood up and I, I just said to him, I'm like, Michael, take the money. I'm like, you need that. 
I'm like, forget about me, you're the painting, like, please just take that money. You know, he was a struggling New York City artist. Yeah. I was like, I was like, just take it. Like, it's okay, you know? Like, we had this moment. We don't, you know, I don't need the painting. I don't need anything. Um, so what happened? Michael agreed. So the man gave him the big wad of cash. Um, you know, they said a few words. He took the painting. He leaned down, because I was back down on the pavement. He leaned down towards me and gave it to me <sighs> and walked away. <laughs> wow right i mean this is a wow story like this is something believe me when it happened to me i was like i don't understand this this is not something i can fathom i'm i there are forces larger than me at work here something else is going on wow um, so I pose the question to you, are there angels among us, you know? Um, were And do angels work through other people, you know? Like, is, is the idea of an angel maybe a consciousness that will inhabit a living person to, to get them to act in a way that um, is maybe beyond themselves, you know? Um, at that point, I started to ask those kind of questions. And again, I didn't know really the archangels or the whole story behind that. But once I found out, I was really, I couldn't deny the significance of that event. It's a great story, Little Star Run. And I, I really, truly appreciate you sharing it here on Troubadours and Rock On Tours. And before we go, I, I have to ask, do you still have the painting? <laughs> I do not have the painting. I actually left it in Oregon um, at a place that I was staying. So the crowning part of the story is, okay, so that was my reassurance that I needed to leave New York, okay? I left New York, and very shortly after, September 11th happened. Wow. Wow. That leaves us to ask many more questions and to maybe build on it next time we talk and you can share another story related or something totally different you are a great storyteller little star run thank you oh, so thank, you. <laughs> thank you so much i i hope you enjoyed it i'm glad i'm glad i could share that there is a continuation of that story um that uh, that we could expand on yeah about what happened when i came back after after the whole september 11th thing um so maybe we could do that next time. <laughs> yeah, it's, if you want to, of course, it's your call. Yeah, um, that that would be interesting, um, maybe for the listeners too. Definitely. Thank you so much. Take care of yourself during these odd, difficult times, and hopefully uh, you and I get to see each other soon. We don't live that far away from one another. Uh, but either way, Again, thank you for being a part of Troubadours and Rock On Tours, Little Star Run. And if people want to look you up, they can find you on social media under that moniker, right, Little Star Run? Yep, I'm at Little Star Run on, on most social media, on Twitter, um, Instagram. You can find me on Facebook. There's no other Little Star Run, so you should be able to find me. <laughs> Take care of yourself. Oh, thank you. You too, EW. Ciao. Take care, everyone. Bye. Ciao.
History titled Old Ways. 
a collection of oral histories as told by people in the Southern Appalachian Mountains, edited by T.J. Smith and published in April by Anchor Books. The stories originally appeared in Fox Fire magazine. This is Jerry Carter in 1993. One time Doc amputated a man's arm, and he buried it in the backyard of his office. A few weeks later, the man came to him and said that he was having terrible pain in and on his arm, the one that had been amputated. He allowed that Doc had buried it crooked. He begged Doc to please dig it up and straighten it out. Doc did just what the man said and dug it up. The man never had any trouble again. Della Cody from 1992. This man come and the dog was with Grandpa. He said, does the dog bite? Grandpa said, the dog ain't going to bite nobody unless they bother me. Well, this man didn't believe him. He said, you mean that dog will fight for you? Well, let's just put on a show. I'm going to fight you and see what that dog will do. So, the man acted like he was going to fight Grandpa. The dog jumped on him. Then he was going to kill the dog. Grandpa said, don't kill my dog. So they got into a fight, and they fought and fought. Since this man was going to kill Grandpa's dog, Grandpa was going to get him. Well, the man started running, and he cut into the house, and then Grandpa cut into the house. As Grandpa was coming around, the man hit him in the back of the head with a rock, and it killed him. This is Hoyt Tench, Unknown Date. I was going out of Tokoya on a steam engine. I left about four o'clock going down by Alberton. I saw white something out. It was foggy, and it was a lady in a nurse uniform. She was running around on the tracks. I blew the horn, not realizing what she was trying to do. She got off, and we missed her. Then there was a brand new Plymouth sitting right there, and we hit the thing. We just ruined it. So we had to have an investigation the next day. At the depot, I told her, I had the headlight on, blowed the horn, blowed the whistle, and didn't see it. She said, he's right. I heard him coming, and I was trying to flag him down, but he could not stop. The railroad went and bought her a new Plymouth at the Plymouth Place in Tokoya. She said that she did not believe that there were people in the world who would do that. It was completely her fault. She said that her mother told her to be sure and stop on the railroad tracks, but her mother meant for her to stop before she got on the railroad tracks. Anyway, she did, and the car went dead, and she couldn't get it cranked again. We hit the car running 25 miles per hour with a big old engine. There are just so many things that can happen. This is Granny Toothman from 1985. We had chickens. Up until I was 12 years old, I had to kill those chickens with an axe and wang on the chopping block. Then I plucked them and all that. After I was 12 years old, I shot them. By then I had me a 22 rifle. It was one of the first bolt action rifles that was ever put out. A single shot. I ordered it from Sears and Roebuck. It cost 4.98. I remember that very well because I got $5 for hoeing corn that summer and I paid for that rifle myself. The first evening I had the rifle, 
I got my shells and went over the hill and killed a squirrel. Dad thought that was great. But that first Christmas I had the rifle, Mother sent me out to kill a chicken. She had some special blue hens that were extra good layers, and then she had these Dominickers that were a whole lot bigger and better to eat, and they didn't lay like the blue ones did. She said for me to get her a big hen and don't kill a blue one. So I went out and shot that Dominicker right in the head, and there was a blue one in line with the shot, and it went right through its neck, and I killed a blue one and a Dominicker both at the same time. I was really nervous about going in and telling her about shooting her blue hen. Dad was in, and I knew I had protection, so I said, Oh, mother, I shot one of your blue hens. She said, I thought I told you not to shoot a blue hen. I said, Well, I couldn't help it. It was right in line with the Dominicker. I got the Dominicker, but I've got a blue hen, too. And she said, Well, I reckon if you killed two birds with one stone... It's all right. shower breeze shave leaves from the ash maple and birch trees and lullaby birds wash over me through a ballad so natural that most don't ever realize the deep earnest beauty but i do do you
feeling mighty lonesome Haven't slept a wink I walk the floor and watch the door And in between I drink Black coffee Love's a hand-me-down broom I'll never know a Sunday In this weekday room I'm talking to the shadows One o'clock to four And Lord how slow the moments go When all I do is pour Black coffee Since the blues caught my I'm hanging out on Monday My Sunday dreams to dry Now a man is born to go I'm moaning all the morning, morning all the night, and in between it's nicotine and not much hot to fight. It's driving me crazy this waiting for my baby to maybe come Episode 379 of Troubadours and Rock on Tours with yours truly, E.W. Conundrum Demure. I'd like to thank those folks who made this episode possible. First and foremost, Little Star Run. I also would like to thank T.J. Smith and Foxfire Magazine, Jerry Carter, Della Cody, Hoyt Tench, Granny Toothman, and, of course, these musical artists. Django Reinhardt, Stefan Grappelli, Frank Sinatra, Bully, 10,000 Maniacs, Ginny McJunkin with John Leon, Sarah Vaughn, Branford Marsalis, and Terrence Blanchard, too. And I'd like to thank you for listening. Until next time, let's give it a go and try to enjoy and do our best 
with this time. Take care.